Imagine, if you can, that your garage is a complete mess. Now, some of you maybe only have to picture your garage at the moment in your mind's eye, and, and you've got it. But regardless of what your garage is really like, imagine it is a complete mess. Nothing's in its place. There, there are pop bottles strewn all over the, the place. They've missed the can as you toss them, and they're just laying there. You have maybe three years' worth of leaves collected in the corner. You have dust and dirt piled up, maybe a little bit of water from snow today. Your garage is a mess. Now, imagine that you also have a teenager in your house who is quite capable of taking on the task of cleaning the garage. Of course, your teenager has shown zero interest in such a project, but the capability is there. So, imagine that Today, you happen to tell your teen to spend the day cleaning the garage. It's his job for the day. Then for the past several hours that your teen has been on the garage, you, you, you hope that he's actually been doing something out there, not just looking at his phone while he's, he's there, but you decide, you know, after several hours, I maybe should go check on progress. You go out, and you're stunned. He's been working. Everything's been picked up. The floors are swept. Everything's been put in its place except for a pile of stuff in the middle of the floor that doesn't have a place. But you find him. He's found some planks laying, and he's building shelves. You didn't even know your teen was capable of such a feat. He's building shelves so that there'll be a place for this stuff to be put on. You immediately, of course, praise your, your son and, and, and praise him for what's already been accomplished. You, you admire this plan that he's developed for the shelves and for storing stuff. And, and then you promise that, that when he's done, you will take him to eat at his favorite restaurant this evening as a reward. Now, having made that promise, you, you go back into the house. Certainly, you expect that your son will complete the task. You don't expect that he's just going to quit at this point. After all, you promised him we'll go to restaurants, so let's go, Dad. I'm done. No, you, you would be shocked and disappointed if he shoved that pile of stuff into the corner they just swept clean and, and said, let's go. You promised him, but, but you expect that he will understand that, that done means that he will complete the assigned task of cleaning up all the stuff, including the pile with the project he's added himself. You expect that that will be part now of what it takes to be done. You, you expect that he understands that this promise of reward that you gave doesn't eliminate his need to finish the task. Rather, this promise of reward encourages him to finish the task. You, you expect that he understands that these two things are, are closely connected. You're promising him a reward because... He is doing his job so diligently. The, the relationship there, that, that relationship between a, a promise and a promise of reward and then the duties, that, that really lies at, at the core of our text tonight. This promise of a reward and the duties that come with the promise, the obligations it carry. Last week, if you were here, we began looking at the section of Genesis that, that traces God's promises through the lifetime of Isaac. We, we did a quick review of the major promises that, that God had given Abraham and, and recognized that many of the promises that God had given to Abraham were unfulfilled or at best partially fulfilled when Abraham died. One promise was fully fulfilled. 
That was the promise of a son. Isaac is that promised son. You, you may recall that I mentioned that, that we'll discover that in this section of, of Genesis, Isaac's sons, uh, Jacob and Esau, they actually play a larger role than, than Isaac himself. We went through the record last week of the twins' births. And we saw that Esau was born, and then Jacob was born right after him. But then we saw also in our text last week the transfer of the birthright, where Esau sold his birthright for a pot of stew to Isaac, the younger of the twins. We observe from the beginning that there's this theme developing of a struggle. There's a tension in this family right from the start. Well, tonight we're only going to look at a small section of the next chapter, the We'll look at the first 11 verses here in Genesis chapter 26. This section is all about Isaac. Uh, The sons do not enter into the events at all. In fact, uh, practically in the entire chapter, they're never mentioned. Just in the the last two verses, one of the sons is mentioned. But while the sons play a role for most of the the section of Isaac, not in this chapter. Tonight, the, the promises, though, are front and center again. We'll, we'll break the 11 verses that, that we're looking at tonight into two sections. And, and the promises are central to both those sections. And both those sections, as we see the promises there, they teach us something about faith. We'll wait and put it all together when we get to the end, but I do want to point out the faith lessons that, that we have in each section as we work our way through. In the first section, verses 1 through 6 of chapter 26, the, the lesson about faith is that faith produces obedience. It produces obedience. Here in this, these verses, we see the call to obedience as the promises are passed to the next generation. Let's read our verses. Genesis 26. Now there was a famine in the land, besides the previous famine that had occurred in the days of Abraham. So Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines, The Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Stay in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, I will be with you and bless you. For to you and your descendants, I will give all these lands. I will establish the oath which I swore to your father Abraham. I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and will give your descendants all these lands. And by your descendants, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed me and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So Isaac lived in Gerar. Now the opening of verse 1 may seem a bit strange if you don't remember that Isaac's father faced a famine back in Genesis 12. And when it says there's famine besides the previous one, well that's referring to the one of Genesis 12. The, the first famine came, if, if you remember at all the tracing of, of Genesis, that, that first famine occurred right after God had given Abram, actually it wasn't Abraham, it was Abram in Genesis 12. God had given Abraham, Abram, I, I can't even hardly remember to say it short form, but God had given Abram the promises in the first verses of Genesis 12, and then right after that, Abram faced a famine. And, and that famine forced him to flee with Sarah, Sarah, or it was Sarai at that time, to Egypt. Moses clearly wants us to connect these two events. He wants us to connect the similarities of, of these famines in our minds and the events. But at the same time, we're to understand that these are 
two entirely separate events. They're, they're occurring many decades apart. If you do the math, we're probably coming up nearing a century has, has passed. So a lot of time ha has occurred. The, the re reason I say maybe nearly a century, we don't know if this is actually happening before or after the twins are born, but decades at the very least have, have passed in between. The last we, we knew of Isaac's location, where he was living, he was dwelling in the southern part of the promised land, and we know that from when he took Rebekah as his wife. We really have no record of where he was living after that. Certainly, he is still somewhere within the promised land when, when the famine struck. The famine obviously was severe enough that Isaac had to leave the area that he was living in in order to find food of any kind for his family and his, his flocks, his herds. So he follows the pattern of his father. He, he heads down toward Egypt. He only gets as far as Gerar. And that is as far as it gets before God intervenes. Gerar was the capital of the Philistines at the time. That, if you know your geography, as you're going from the Promised Land down toward Egypt, Gerar is along the coastline. It's the Philistines had the coastline area, kind of as it swings through. It's in that area. It's the capital of, of that area. And that place is right on his route as he's heading down towards Egypt. And while Isaac stops there, he's staying there for a time, God appears and, and tells him not to go on down to Egypt, rather to, to stay in the land. Notice God doesn't give any explanation in verse 2 to Isaac why he's staying in the land. He simply tells him, stay in the land. Gerar was still within the boundaries that God had promised Abraham as the totality of the promised land, which would stretch from really Egypt all the way far north to the Euphrates area. It, so he's in the, the promised land here, and we're to assume that, that God's reason for the command Isaac not to go further was that he was not to leave the land that God promised to Abraham. The reason we can make that assumption is, is because God uses this as an opportunity now to formally restate the promises that he had made to Abraham, restate those to Isaac. We know Isaac, as I said, is the son of promise, is the one portion of the promises Abraham received that, were clear, that was clearly and fully fulfilled. Abraham was promised a son. Isaac is that son. But now God specifically tells Isaac that all of the other things that God had promised Abraham are also promised to Isaac. Yet, if we compare the statement of the promises that God makes to Isaac in, in verses 3 and 4 with the promises that we reviewed last week that God made to Abraham in chapter 12. If we review those, we can note that Isaac actually receives an additional promise. He gets the promises that God gave Abraham, but he has a different, an additional aspect as well. It's actually the first thing we see in the, the promises in verse 3. Stay in this land, sojourn here, and God says, I will be with you and bless you. There's a conditional element here. Isaac is, is to obey the command to stay in the land, but there's also an additional element of the promise. God says, I will be present with you. The, God will bless Isaac in a personal way with his presence. Now, hold that, mind in your, or hold that thought in your minds that God has added this additional element, and now jump past the list of promises that, that God repeats to Isaac and, and look at verse 5. 
the rest of verse 3 and 4, that, that's repetition, really, of the promises that God gave Abraham. Verse, but look at verse 5. God promises Isaac the same promises they promised Abraham because Abraham obeyed me. Isaac is inheriting the promises because his father was obedient. Now, if you remember Abraham's life at all, Abraham was nowhere close to living a life of spotless obedience. Um, in fact, the length that Moses gave us right at the beginning here to, to start with, this reminder that, that <coughs> this family connects to chapter 12, that is meant to remind us that Abraham was far from perfect. When, when Abraham fled down to Egypt, that was one of the dismal points in his life because Abraham had just received the promises from God. He goes down to Egypt, and he attempts to pass his wife off as his sister. And if you remember the story, he very nearly saw his wife end up in Pharaoh's harem. It, it required the, dex, the direct intervention of God to preserve the promises that God had just given him. And yet that's the link that, that Moses has placed here in our mind. But as we have that link to this time where there was this failure on Abram's part, God points to Abram's obedience as the reason that Isaac is receiving these promises. Moses really is making a, a not-so-subtle allusion to Genesis 22.18. There God told Abraham directly, In your seed all the nations of the earth will be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. There's this context of obedience that God told Abraham, you have obeyed me. Now God is telling Isaac, your father obeyed me. And that grand statement, this, this grand statement that all the nations of the earth will be blessed because you've obeyed me, that is given to Abraham after he demonstrated his willingness to sacrifice Isaac. Remember the moment there on Mount Moriah. God had told him, sacrifice his son, and Abraham raised the knife ready to plunge it down before God halted his hand. That moment, that's the hallmark moment of Abraham's faith. And yet God calls that his obedience. Faith produces obedience. Let's not forget, Moses is writing this text to a fledgling nation as they're walking between Egypt and the promised land. They're heading that direction. As I reminded us last week, they're in the wilderness, and Moses is answering the questions regarding their origin as a people. How did we get here? Why are we here? What does God expect for us? So he's laying out that expectation, what God expects. Genesis 26 is worded really in precisely the same way in which obedience to the Mosaic law is described in Deuteronomy 11.1. 1. Yes, Isaac is called to faith, but he's called to a faith that produces obedience. And so, too, are the Israelites traveling with Moses. They are called to a faith that produces obedience. Faith in God will produce obedience to God's commands. Note of the short verse which Moses gives that closes off this section. It really also sets up the next section, but it closes off this section. Verse 6. So, Isaac lived in Gerar. It almost seems like a irrelevant verse except that it begins with that word so 
God told Isaac not to go to Egypt. Despite the famine, he was to remain in Gerar. He was to remain in promised land. God has shown us that faith is demonstrated here in obedience. Did Isaac have faith? Isaac obeyed God. He did what God said. Now, before we move on, let's bring this home for us as well. As I said, Moses wrote this for Israel, yet God has preserved it for us. Faith produces obedience. Many of the promises that that we looked at were given as unconditional promises to Abraham and Isaac as well. there, There isn't a condition wrapped on it. God has promised that he would do these things, period. He is going to, to bring forth a number of things that, that will make Israel a great nation, period. Obedience and disobedience won't change many of the things God has promised to do. And yet, what we're to see is that even in the unconditional promises of God, there is a conditional element. The conditional element is the participation of individuals in the blessings of those promises. God will accomplish what he's going to do, but for the individual to participate in the blessing, the individual must be obedient to the commands of God. For Abraham and Isaac to enjoy the blessings that that go along with the outcomes that, that God has promised he will produce, they needed to obey God's word. The point that the Israelites were to get is the same is true for them. God was going to make them a great nation, but for each of them to be enjoying the benefits that come from being that nation, they needed to obey God's law. The same is true for you and I as well. God will accomplish his promises. For us to participate in the blessings connected to his promises, we must live obedient lives because for us to participate, we must have faith. We, we won't participate in any promise of God if we do not have faith in God. And faith produces obedience. Do you have faith in God? Are you living obediently? The, the good news is that Abraham was declared obedient by God. And despite the fact that Abraham lived a life far from perfect, he was declared by God obedient. That's good news because we know he failed miserably. We, we know he failed repeatedly. Yet, after his failures, he, he picked himself up, he, he strengthened his faith in God, and ultimately became a model of obedience. That, that means that despite our many failures... However many we may have accumulated to this point in our names, we too can strengthen our faith in God, and we too can allow faith to produce obedience in us. Faith produces obedience. That's what we see in this initial call here to obedience. As these promises are passed on to the next generation, God's including a call to obedience to Isaac. Let's move on and look at the last section that we're going to review this evening. The lesson of faith that we find in the next section is that faithlessness produces opportunities for sin. Here, this section is the preservation of the promises as the next generation wavers in faith. And as we see the wavering in faith, we see that faithlessness produces opportunities for sin. Verse 7. When the men of the place, that would be the Philistines, the men of Gerar, asked about his wife, Isaac's wife, 
Rebekah, he said, she is my sister. For he was afraid to say, my wife, thinking the men of the place might kill me on account of Rebekah, for she is beautiful. It came about when he had been there a long time that Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out through a window and saw, and behold, Isaac was caressing his wife, Rebekah. Then Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, certainly she is your wife. How then did you say, she is my sister? And Isaac said to him, Because I said, I might die on account of her. Abimelech said, What is this you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech charged all the people, saying, He who touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. There is way too much deja vu here. Remember, not only did Abraham try to pass Sarah off as his sister in Egypt in Genesis 12, he tried the same thing again in Genesis 20. Actually, in Genesis 20, when he stayed in Gerar, the very same place. And now we run into Isaac doing the exact same thing. With one difference. In Abraham's case, at least it was partially true. Sarah was Abraham's half-sister. So at least there was an element of truth mixed in the deception. Isaac's case, there is no truth at all. It was just a flat, out-and-out, complete lie. What is significant is that Moses points out that the reason Isaac attempted his deception is because he was afraid, in verse 7. Fear motivated Isaac. Fear drove him to do this. Fear that comes right on the heels of God instructing Isaac to obey him, and more significantly, right on the heels of God promising Isaac that he would bless him. If there's ever a time in Isaac's life where fear should not be present, when he should be brimming with confidence, this is it. God has just spoken to him. God has just said, I am going to give you the blessings I gave your father. I have the same promises I'm going to give to you. And yet, how quickly fear overcomes him instead. Now, the text doesn't say, but, but I personally suspect, this is my, my suspicions, is that the events we're looking at tonight occurred before the events we looked at last week. Like I said, we don't know when this happened in relationship to the birth and the the growing up of the boys, but it seems to me that it would have been a whole lot harder for Isaac to pass Rebecca off as his sister if his sons were hanging around and there wasn't a mother present that he could point to. It just seems like it would have made the, the deception a little bit more challenging. But at any rate, after quite some time, Isaac told everyone that she's my sister. After quite some time, the king happened to look out his window and observed Isaac behaving in a patently unbrotherly manner toward Rebecca. Abimelech um, immediately recognizes that he's been deceived. Again, God, just as we're seeing in the Song of Solomon, God takes these very human things and never includes vulgarity, but we're clearly being told that Isaac is doing something here that's not the way a brother acts. And Abimelech sees that and says, this is his wife, not his sister. So Isaac's called out on his deception, and immediately he does confess to the king. Now there are a couple things that I want to notice before we consider how Abimelech deals with with this matter. First, let's 
recognize that when Abraham posed the ruse decades earlier, God supernaturally intervened. When Abraham tried, God visited the king in a dream with a warning. This time, there is no direct warning from God to Abimelech. Yet, we should recognize that God is just as involved in ensuring that his promises are not jeopardized by Isaac's actions as he was when he approached Abimelech and dreamed to preserve his promises to Abraham. God is equally able to accomplish his purpose through direct intervention or through indirect control of circumstances, uh, through happenstances. Happenstances is just the hand of God moving through what we would think of as normal course of events. But God is still moving. And God preserves the promises by arranging for Abimelech to look out the window at just the right time to spot Isaac interacting with his wife. Second, Moses here, I want us to notice, uses an interesting choice of words for the one that we have translated caressing. There's wordplay in that that is a word that's related to Isaac. It it comes from the same root as Isaac. Isaac means he he laughed, and and this means the, the same, or has that idea behind it. But more significantly than the wordplay, this word is the same word that was used earlier in this book in the story of Ishmael. When Ishmael was mockingly playing with Isaac in chapter 21, verse 9. That's the point where Sarah saw Ishmael mocking her son and demanded that he be put out of the family unit. What Moses seems to be suggesting here through, through the choice of words is that at one level, Isaac is playing with his wife. But at another level, Isaac is making a mockery of both Abimelech and his men's But more significantly, Isaac is making a mockery of the promises of God. Moses is telling us that Isaac's laughing with his wife is no laughing matter. This is serious because he has doubted the blessing of God. The seriousness of what happened is conveyed through Abimelech's question in, in verse 10. What is this you have done to us? That, that echoes the, the one posed by Pharaoh a generation earlier in Genesis twelve eighteen. Pharaoh asked Moses, what is this you have done to me? But the core of that question goes back further. The core of that question reaches all the way back to Genesis 3, verse 13, when God confronts Eve in the garden. What is this you have done? This is a question that challenges wrongdoing. Abimelech recognizes that Isaac's actions could have easily led to sinful actions by, by the Philistine men. Those actions, if they had, had been acted on, had been undertaken, those actions would have brought guilt upon the nation. In order to ensure that that doesn't happen, Abimelech places a formal decree of protection upon Isaac and Rebekah and, and declares them untouchable to everyone in his country. Abimelech becomes God's messenger to point out how severe this deception is. It's interesting. Moses goes out of his way, really, to contrast Abimelech with Isaac. Abimelech is the one who's righteous in the verses here. He is the one who's concerned about sin and guilt. 
even though he's a non-Israelite, he, he's a Gentile, he's presented as pious, whereas Isaac is not. Isaac is driven by fear. We need to remember that, that heritage never produces righteousness. Con- concern for what is right produces righteousness. Obedience produces righteousness. Faith produces righteousness. Not heritage. Beyond this, we, we also need to recognize that, that it is Isaac's faithlessness that, that creates the situation that, that gives Abimelech the concern. Isaac's faithlessness creates opportunities where the Philistines could sin. Isaac would not directly cause their sin. Their sin would still be theirs because they would be the ones acting by, by taking a woman and, and laying with her out, out of marriage. Their sin would be their own if one of the men took Rebekah. Their guilt would be theirs. Still, Isaac is creating the opportunity for such sin through his deception. We should be reminded by this that, that we do not live in a bubble. Our actions always affect the people around us. Whenever we do something, it impacts those who are around us. When we act in a faithless way, we can create a situation that, that can lead others to sin, even if, if we avoid those sinful actions ourselves. Just acting faithlessness creates an environment that enables sin. And this is another reason that, that should motivate us to, to pursue faith and faithfulness rather than faithlessness. Faithlessness produces opportunities for sin. As we see God here preserve the promises for the next generation, as that generation wavers in faith, we need to remember that faithlessness produces this opportunity for sin. So I've moved quickly through the text here tonight. We've seen God communicate his promises to, to Isaac, preserve his promises by passing them to the next generation. We saw initially Isaac respond with faith through obedience. But then we also saw God preserve his promises as he, he didn't allow Isaac's faithlessness to, to ultimately jeopardize the promises. He intervened through the circumstances. From this, we should learn that, that God communicates his promises for a purpose. Much like... That, that dad that I asked you to imagine at the beginning, when the dad gave the promise of reward, that promise is meant to motivate obedience. is meant to motivate duty. is to motivate us to continue doing the, our actions. Well, God gives his promises for the same reason. He is to motivate a response, a response of faith. God does promise great reward, but it's to motivate a response of faith. If we put this together... The, the lesson that, that we can learn tonight is that God's promises produce our obligation to obey him. They don't alleviate our obligation. They actually produce our obligation. They motivate our duty. Sometimes I fear we mistake what it means to, to rest on the promises of God. We, we seem to act as if we think the promises of God means that it no, matters, no longer matters really what we do or, or don't do for that matter is that let go and let God idea. We, we do what we want. We just live our lives and God will accomplish his purposes without anything from us. God will accomplish his purposes. But for us to be participate in the blessings, we have to be obedient. And God has given us promises 
that are meant to generate that obedience. God's promises do not alleviate us from doing our duty. They, they produce duty. They produce our obligation to obey him. God has promised many things. God, God has promised great reward. Living this side of the cross, we, we know that his promise of an eternal reward flows through the work of, of Christ. Yet, how often do people say that they believe the work of Jesus Christ, they, they have trusted him for their salvation, but then they continue to live lives that are rampantly disobedient to God. They, they continue to live lives that, that show no faithful obedience whatsoever. They live lives that, that proclaim faithlessness rather than faith. We know people like that, don't we? But let's bring it more personal. How often do we profess our faith in Jesus Christ, joyously celebrating the promises that, that God has given us, that, that we've received through Christ, and then we turn around and we do things that we know are disobedient to the commands of God. God has not promised us our security in Christ so that we can live disobedient lives. God's promised us security in Christ in order to motivate us to live dedicated, obedient lives. Obedience is, is the natural product of our faith. Disobedience is the product of some level of faithlessness. And as we've seen this evening, disobedience will impact others as well as ourselves. As we close out this portion of our service tonight, let's, let's celebrate the promises of God. And as we do, let's, let's recognize that God's promises produce our obligation to obey him. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the promises of God. And we thank you that you have shown us in your word how the promises apply to our life and how they should motivate our behavior. I pray that you would help us all to live faithfully as we leave. And may our faith produce the obedience rather than walking off here and showing elements of faithlessness that, that can hinder our walk as well as create opportunities for sin of others around us. May we live lives that are diligent and obedient, showing our joy in what we receive from Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.